Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone of the Department of History at Augustana College. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello. On the 15th day of March, the first month of the year, 709 years after the founding of the city of Rome, Julius Caesar was assassinated. It remains perhaps the most famous assassination in Western or any other part of world history. Yet, for something so well known, uh, just about every freshman in an American high school has to read Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, it is remarkable how badly understood the event remains. As is so often the case with our understanding of the past, it is not the facts that we don't know about Caesar's murder that are the problem. The problem are those things that we are convinced are true, but simply aren't. Deciphering and explaining the assassination of Julius Caesar is the work of my guest Barry Strauss in his new book, The Death of Caesar. Barry Strauss is the Bryce and Edith M. Bomar Professor in Humanistic Studies at Cornell University, where he's also Chair of the Department of History, and he is a prolific author in classical history. Among his many notable books are the really fantastic uh, Battle of Salamis, the naval encounter that saved Greece and Western civilization, and the Spartacus War. I should also mention uh, his 1999 memoir, was that right? Uh, That's right. Rowing Against the Current on Learning to Skull at 40. Um, it was, that was the era of memoirs. Uh, this is one that's still worth reading. And it's not simply about uh, rowing. Um, well, it's really great about rowing. But it's also about learning and new beginnings. Uh, Barry, thanks for joining me. Uh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me, Al. Pleasure to be here. Well, um, as I was saying to you uh, before we started uh, recording, uh, one of the great things about this book is the way that it uh, brings us into a foreign country. It brings us into the, the the Roman Republic that we all think we know something about, but in fact, it's a very, very strange place. Um, one of the remarkable things that uh, you bring out is that the, there are even more conspirators uh, than Shakespeare tells us about. Uh, there were, how many are on the list, uh, or the bully, 60, 30, something like that? Well, um, you know, well, most ancient sources say that there were 60-plus conspirators. One source says there were 80-plus conspirators. We can only name 20 of them. Right. So there's an num- uh, uh, a h- amazing number of personalities. So what I'd like to do, we'd, we'd start by briskly going through some of the dramatis personae. Uh, sure. we're, we're not going to go through the end of the book. I want people to read it. Um, but we can at least get take ourselves up to Caesar's funeral, which seems to me the, the pivot on which everything else turns. And in some ways, it's even more important uh, than his death, uh, oddly enough. But oh, we can talk about that. Um, Caesar himself. How would, how would Barry Strauss describe him? Uh, Caesar is unique. Uh, there's really uh, no one in history quite like him because in addition to being a great commander and a great politician, he was also a great writer. Yeah. You know, he leaves us the fantastic commentaries on the Gallic War and the Civil War, which are uh, tremendous works, very difficult to translate. You know, if there's, it, it, you need, there are many good reasons to learn Latin, but one of them is the ability to appreciate Caesar's prose. He also is um, unique. As I was reading, I, I had a discussion with someone yesterday about Napoleon, who went 
very self-consciously models himself after Caesar. Indeed. And both of them are this extraordinary, rare character, the revolutionary authoritarian. Yes. Yes, Napoleon is also one of history's rarest characters, and he did have a way with words, but he didn't leave any well-crafted books the way Caesar did. No, he didn't. But what strikes me about both of them is that... um, they are dictators, unquestionably. Um, Absolutely. They have, uh, in fact, you might say dictatorial authoritarian personalities. Um, yes. You can almost track them as the tyrant in Plato's Republic um, in, in so many ways. Um, yep. and, and yet, they are both intent on um, tearing down the society which they dominate. Well, I think they would have said they were intent on improving the society yeah, that but, they dominated, and I think that one of Caesar's characteristics, and also Napoleon's, uh, is that they were visionaries. They saw further uh, than their contemporaries, and they understood the need for change if they were to preserve their societies. But neither one of them had the patience to persuade and negotiate with committees um, and to uh, engage in the back and forth that would slow things down. They wanted to move, charge ahead, and that made them many enemies. Yeah, uh, Mark Antony. Well, you know, Antony is easy to misunderstand. Um, on the one hand, yes, he is the um, uh, the ladies' man, the famous lover later of, of Cleopatra, and and even before Caesar's assassination, he engaged in scandalous affairs. Uh, and he's a great general, probably Caesar's best general. But he's also a relatively conventional aristocratic Roman politician. He is not as much sold on change as Caesar is. And although he's close to Caesar, very close to Caesar, there is some daylight between them, and he disagrees with Caesar about a number of things. In fact, the reason the Senate has to meet on March 15th, 44 BC, is because Antony disagrees with Caesar's choice to be his replacement as consul, and he's holding things up. And Caesar wants to uh, get his decision ratified. Lepidus. Lepidus um, is, as uh, history records, a fairly conventional guy. He is Caesar all the way, a Caesar man all the way. Um, he, on the Ides of March 44 BC, he's in a very advantageous position because he's commanding a legion. Uh, this legion is domiciled on the Tiber Island, which in 44 BC was counted as outside the city of Rome. Now it's in the historical center of Rome. Mm-hmm. So he did have uh, several thousand, uh, probably not many more than a thousand men uh, at his disposal, armed men on his disposal in the events after the Ides of March. So he's a very important person and um as as you make very clear in the um as it were in the coup counter coup um yes. after Caesar's he's a, death. He's a very important person. Um the conspirators. Uh Brutus. Oh, Brutus is a complicated guy. You know, he is he comes from one of the oldest families in the Republic. He traces his ancestry back to the founder of the Republic, Lucius Junius. Brutus. Um in addition to being a uh politician. Um, He is a philosopher and an orator of some renown. He knows Greek uh, and more of an idealist than your average Roman politician, but he's not totally an idealist. He cares about himself and his family, and in his checkered career as lieutenant governor of Cyprus, he charged an interest rate of 48% to the provincials. 
And when they didn't, when they didn't pay up, he sent his henchmen to lock them up in the town council uh, chamber. They locked the town councilmen up in their in their council chamber until several of them had died, and then the rest agreed to pay up. So he could play hardball. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's another uh, Brutus, but uh, for convenience, uh, we call him Decimus. Yes. Uh, he seems to me one of the least known, uh, but yet, uh, as you make clear, one of the most important of the conspirators. Yes. He is a distant cousin of the famous Brutus, Marcus Brutus. Um, and he, like Antony or Lepidus, but unlike Brutus, uh, had hitched his wagon to Caesar's star at the very beginning of his career. He was with Caesar in Gaul and in the Civil War, and he was a naval commander. Gaul was his specialty probably went back to his grandfather. Uh, Caesar appointed him as his uh, substitute governor of Gaul while Caesar was fighting the Civil War. Um, and Decimus was the rare man, Roman who could actually speak the native language. He spoke Gaulish. He was very ambitious and um, I think dissatisfied with the fact that although he was a leading figure under Caesar, he was not absolutely at the top, and it became clear that um, he was not going to be Caesar's heir. I think that bothered him. Hmm. Um, Cassius. Cassius um, is a great general and a not bad politician, also an elite Roman. Uh, Unlike um, Decimus, but like Brutus, he did not support Caesar in the Civil War. He supported Caesar's enemies, led by Pompey and Cato. And then eventually he made his peace with Caesar. Caesar pardoned him, and Caesar appoints him to high government office, but not high enough for Cassius. Furthermore, Cassius is willing to support Caesar when he's worried about people who are even worse than Caesar. But once the Civil War is settled, and Cassius is presented with the option of Caesar as dictator, then he turns on Caesar. Mm-hmm. Um, he's the first we've mentioned of the conspirators who is not, um, who was a supporter of Pompey. Um, is that uh, right? No, actually Brutus was Brutus a supporter was, of Pompey. Okay. Well. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. Um, what struck me is the number of, of the conspirators. I not realized who were in some way a, an officer of Caesar's. Uh, prior to this, and another, correct. Another one would be um, would be Simber. Yes, um, we know less about him. We know that he was a brawler and a hard drinker, who Caesar was very fond of, and yet he too joined the conspiracy. Um, he made a joke saying, um, "If I can't stand my wine, how could I stand a master?" <laughs> that was supposed to uh, represent his his inability to accept Caesar's dictatorship. Mm-hmm. And Casca, is Casca an aristocrat, or is, is he a, one of Caesar's officers? Yes. Okay. Yes. And he had also served uh, in the army with Caesar? Mm-hmm. Yep. And, um, and his brother as well, Gaius Casca. Yes. Yes. And these are the two, when, when, the, um, when, the, when, when it comes to blows, these are the, the first people that um, strike Caesar, and, and Gaius Casca is probably the one that kills him. There's good reason to think it. We can't be 100% no, sure, but not. good reason to think guys. There are a number of women who are also involved, and we know, mm-hmm. about, we know about Cleopatra, but uh, and I find Servilia and uh, Fulvia more fascinating. Servilia. Yeah. Servilia. 
Well, Servilia is this remarkable person. She comes from an aristocratic family. She is Brutus's mother, but she's also Caesar's lover. Um, she had been his mistress in the 50s BC, um, and we're told that she was the mistress who Caesar loved above all of all his many mistresses. There was a rumor that Brutus was Caesar's illegitimate son. That's almost certainly not true because Caesar was 15 when Brutus was born. That's not an absolute deal breaker, uh, but it makes it unlikely. Even more unlikely is that Brutus would have ever agreed to um, kill uh, the man who was his father because the Romans considered uh, parricide to be the most heinous crime. Um, so Servilia and then uh, Fulvia. Fulvia is Antony's wife uh, at, in, at the time of Caesar's assassination. But earlier, she had been married to two other pop, uh, politicians. Um, her second husband was a man named Curio, who died in the Civil War, and her first husband was a man named Clodius. Clodius was a demagogue, a populist demagogue, uh, who was assassinated in a brawl on the Appian Way um, in 52 BC, so eight years before Caesar. And his funeral was a prototype of Caesar's funeral. Um, he was buried, I mean, he was burned on a, cremated on a funeral pyre in the Forum, and uh, his uh, funeral was followed by a riot that tore the Senate House down. So I think that she was giving Antony uh, pointers uh, when, uh, at the time of Caesar's funeral in 44 BC. <laughs> uh, she was a tough, smart lady. She's the only woman we know of to have raised an army in the Roman Republic. <laughs> really? Uh, and did she, did she command it as well? I don't think so. There's some of the sources that suggest that, but I, think, I find that highly unlikely. It's, it's, she supposedly she put on um, armor mm -hmm. uh, in in command in, in raising this army. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's amazing and enough that she raised an army, let alone. It's amazing enough, and uh, her the it was her opponents had sling bullets inscribed with in, insults about parts of her body, and these sling bullets still exist. We have them. <laughs> uh, Portia. Portia is Brutus's trophy wife. So in the summer of 45, Brutus suddenly divorces his wife of many years, and uh, her name was Claudia, and he marries uh, Portia. Portia was his half-first cousin. She was the daughter of his mother, Servilia's half-brother, and that half-brother was none other than uh, Cato the Younger, who was the most famous of Caesar's opponents. Cato the Younger uh, was a, 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 an arch enemy of Caesar, died in the wall support of the Republic. Caesar had this uh, policy during the Civil War of pardoning his enemies, or rather of forcing his enemies to demand a pardon from him, which they found insulting, but most of them did anyhow. Cato's the great exception. Rather than accepting a pardon from Caesar, he commits suicide, and so he becomes the symbol of the opposition. And as I said, suddenly in the summer of 45 BC, Brutus divorces his wife and marries Portia, who's now a widow. She had been previously married. Um, and and um, his mother, Sevilia, is very unhappy about this new marriage. The only issue, it's not necessarily true that the only issue is political. There might have been personal issues as well, but it's an interesting turn of events. Hey, what's extraordinary, I mean, the, this list of women goes on, and we don't really have time to go through them all, but it, it certainly gives the lie to the idea of Roman women being extraordinarily compliant to the desires of their husbands. 
That's um, certainly true, and you know it continues in the empire. If you look at the history of the emperors, there's just an extraordinary uh, cast of characters of powerful and important women. Yeah, these and uh, the trophy wives, but also the men like uh, Decimus's wife, who divorces her husband on the day. Yes. Yeah, I mean, just in order the day that he's coming back from the army in order yes. to uh, be with Decimus. It's just extraordinary. Um, so proper material. Absolutely. Um, Here's a historiographical question. What are the sources for this? And this is, always fascinates every other historian about classicists because you can do so much with so little. Um, yet this is the most well-attested event in the classical world, probably. Is that right? I mean, in, If it's not the most well-attested event, it must be one of the most yeah. well-attested. And yet, of course... And to you, this is a, a gold mine of material. To the rest That's of right. the rest of us, it's like, wow! Look at that! Look how little there is. That's right. So, what do you, what do you rely on? So, there are a number of sources. Um, uh, there are five main detailed sources. I should say that Cicero, who was there on the Ides of March, um, shortly afterwards writes a very short paragraph about it. And that's useful, but it's not very detailed. Um, there are five detailed sources. So the most famous, you know, I can go through them quickly. Yeah. The most famous is Plutarch uh, in his Lives of Caesar and Brutus. And how, that's the one how, that so, Shakespeare relied on. And how, how far after the event is that written? So that's written about 150 years later. Okay. Plutarch did read memoirs written at the time, uh, one by a friend of Brutus, one by Brutus's stepson. He also read a history book that no longer exists, a very important one by Asinius Pollio, uh, who was not there. Uh, but he did, know, he did know Caesar. He fought for Caesar, and he was a contemporary. Um, Plutarch is very much of an idealist. Plutarch is a Greek. He loves Brutus. Because Plutarch's a philosopher, Brutus is a philosopher, and a Philhellene, so he tends to give a pro-Brutus story. Mm-hmm. Um, second source that Shakespeare used is a man named Appian, Appian of Alexandria, another Greek in the Roman Empire. Unlike Plutarch, Appian held military and political office. Um, he lived like Plutarch uh, a, a little bit later than Plutarch, not much. He's living in the second century A.D. So he, too, is at a remove from the events, but he does have access to contemporary sources that no longer exist. Mm-hmm. Three other detailed sources. The most important of them is Suetonius, lived around the same time as Appian. He works for the Emperor Hadrian in the second century A.D., and he writes these wonderful lies of the Twelve Caesars. They are very, very stylized and rhetorical documents. Uh, the life of the deified Julius, the first one, is uh, it's just a masterpiece of prose. But it is not meant to be objective. It's got its own um, axis to grind, but very full of, full of all of many, many important details about uh, Caesar. And he has a relatively detailed account of the assassination. And Nicholas then of we've Damascus. got um, a much later sort. Go on. Hello? Yeah, sorry, go on. Yeah, a much later source, Cassius Dio, writing in the early 3rd century uh, AD. Uh, he was a senator, uh, he was knowledgeable, writes in Greek, um, history of Rome, got a fair amount about the assassination. Cassius Dio is not above improving the sources to say what he thinks should have happened. Uh, but it's very interesting and useful. But the source I relied most on is the earliest and 
Nicholas of Damascus. Nicholas of Damascus was a Greek who came from Syria. As a young man, he studied uh, he studied Aristotle and Thucydides, so philosophy and history. And I think those are two excellent um, sources of inspiration. He then went on to have a remarkable career. He was first in the court of King Herod in Jerusalem, so he knew a thing or two about conspiracies. Yeah. Then he was, went to Alexandria, where he was tutor to the children of Antony and Cleopatra. And finally, in Rome, he was a secretary to the Emperor Augustus. Nicholas was not in Rome at the time of the Ides of March. He was alive. He was around 15 at the time. But when he got to Rome, he was able to talk to people who had been there, or who had more access to the information than, than the uh, typical person would. And he writes a biography, A Life of the Emperor Augustus, the first part of which talks about his young career um, as Caesar's grandnephew, uh, a man we call Octavian, and has a very detailed account of the conspiracy and the assassination. Now, this is unlike the idealistic Plutarch. It is a very realistic, if not to say cynical, account of what happened. If Machiavelli had written an account of Caesar's assassination, it would be Nicholas of Damascus's account. Scholars have tended to downplay Nicholas on the grounds that he worked for Augustus, so they see him as being too pro-Augustus, and he is a bit pro-Augustus. But there's been some really good revisionist work on uh, Nicholas in the last 20 years um, that shows just how good a source he was and how valuable a source. And so I felt confident in using Nicholas in a way that others haven't. Hmm. And amazingly enough, uh, for the classical era, there are also letters um, that survive. Yes. yes. Cicero's letters. Cicero's letters are one of our best sources in all of ancient history. There are letters between him and his uh, correspondent friend Atticus, who is uh, an elite Roman. Um, and uh, also letters between him and some of the other conspirators, including Brutus, Decimus, Cassius, Trebonius, um, some lesser-known ones. Um, sadly, there are no letters um, on the Ides of March or about directly about the Ides of March, but there are letters beforehand that talk about Caesar's uh, monopolization of power and letters afterwards that look back on the Ides of March. So they're tremendously important for us. One of, as I said, I think at the in the beginning, one of the uh, things that uh, is a part of reading this book is realizing how far away uh, the Rome, what a different country, what a foreign country the Roman Republic is to us. Um, although it seems we use the term republic, um, Americans see themselves as the latest republic. Uh, we use neoclassical architecture and a, a throwback to it, and yet. Um, I would like to go through some of the terms that you uh, use, the Latin terms, you try to explain them, because there's really no good English um, <laughs> cognate for some of these right. ideas. Um, and they amount, to, they, they amount to some of the terms of art for this, this foreign place. Um, I think one of them is really republic. Yeah. What did the Romans mean by republic? Um, well, uh, republic comes from the Latin term res publica, which means a public thing or a thing held in common. The opposite is revealing its raised privata or a private thing. For the Romans, a monarchy was a private thing, and a republic was a common thing. Um, they didn't mean democracy by a republic or, in some sense, 
actually, they did mean democracy in the modern sense of the term, but they didn't mean democracy in the ancient sense of the term. For the ancients, democracy was direct democracy, in which ordinary people would meet in an, an assembly, an open-air assembly, and make decisions, and in which most public offices were chosen by lottery. Mm-hmm. You'd have a pre-selection to rule out criminals or people who simply were not qualified. But then from a very large pool, you choose most public officials by a lottery, and they'd hold one year term, and most of them would be in on, serve on boards of 10. Now, the Roman Republic, in some ways, was closer to our system. Um, there would be a legislative and electoral assemblies to which the people would come. Although it wasn't one man, one vote, it tended to be the people who lived in or very close to the city of Rome. But important public officials, almost all public officials, were chosen by election. And the elections were a lot like our elections. Money made a big difference. Uh, You needed money to electioneer, and the public was bribed by candidates um, as often as not. Um, And they were hard-fought campaigns. Public officials had a great deal of power. They tended to hold hold office for only one-year terms. Um, They had a great deal of power. Um, And the Roman system was was less democratic than ours. They entrusted more power to these officials and had less power um, in in the legislature. Ex-public officials would sit for life in a body of elders called the Senate, which literally means Council of Elders. And they had very important, though unofficial, advisory role. Um, the Senate was, was a key player in the Roman state and in many ways guided the state. There was no permanent executive. Every year, two people were chosen to the highest executive position, the consul. But there were two of them, not one of them, and they would hold office only for a year. Uh, who chose them? The people um, in an election. Okay. So, uh, and this is important, we might... Oh, a senator is a term of art in its own way. Once right. you've served in some public office, um, yes. chief priest, for example, that was was that elected office? Uh, the chief priest in Caesar's day, it was indeed an elected elected office. So, if I serve a term as chief priest, then after that, I am in the Senate. Yes, but you would never get to be chief priest if you weren't already a senator. I see. Okay, <laughs> this is the complexities of of this. Um, so. Uh, so there's no um, so in other words, senators are not elected as senators. They've been they've been elected to some other office of state right. and then become That's senators. Right. Okay, so I have to dispel any modern notions of uh, districts or you know that they're not being elected to serve represent a certain number of people. No, not at all. And in fact, in these ele- the elections are held on a given day. That the election is held in Rome, in a place in Rome. You actually have to show up. You don't go to your polling place. There's only one polling place in Rome. And you vote according to um, uh, census categories, which are based on financial class. Let's say you vote according to the class categories. And the, the power of the, the wealthy have weighted power. So the, the votes of the wealthy count more than the votes of ordinary people. Mm-hmm. Optimates. The optimates, uh, this is not a technical term, but it's a slogan. Um, uh, Roman politics was roughly divided into what we would call the left and the right. The Romans did not use those terms, which, of course, don't come until the French Revolution. Um, But 
But the optimates were more or less the equivalent of the right. This literally would be translated as the best men or the best people. Um, Cicero also calls them the good people. Um, what we would call the right, these are people who believe in the power of birth and wealth to uh, run Rome. That, yes, the people should have a say, but ultimately the most important decision maker should be a very few number of men from a very small number of families, elite Roman families. Those are the ones who should guide the state, and the optimates believe this firmly. And their opponents would be the populares? Yes, the, the, the men of the people, the populace, if they will. Uh, the populares were not Democrats. They didn't want to turn power over to the common people, but they believed that the welfare of the common people was more important than the optimates did, and they believed in taxing the rich in one way or another, various ways, um, in ways that wealth would be shared more with the poor, and they believed in giving power to the poor in various ways. They were champions of the poor. And so on the, if we had to pick the sort of most notable of the optim optimates would be someone like Brutus or Cicero, Cicero, I would imagine. Well, you know, in Caesar's lifetime, the most notable uh, of them uh, was Cato. Cato he was right. the most notable of the optimates. Cicero, uh, Brutus was certainly um, one of the optimates as well. Cicero liked to think of himself as someone who stood in the middle between the, the factions, but for all intents and purposes, he was one of the optimates as well. And by 44 BC, he was the last lion of the Roman Republic. He was the last leader of the optimates left. And in, in many ways, Cicero seems to me, at reading this, it's very distressing because uh, there's no one really I would want to identify with <laughs> on either side. Uh, there's no, you, I don't find any hero when I read the book uh, and say, oh, yes, yes, here's, there's my leader. Uh, Cicero, in many ways, is the last person who believes the Republic is viable and a good thing. And, and it becomes almost delusionary, it seems, by the end of the book um, that he would think this. Um, so awful is the condition for that everyone else sees well i think it's uh, it's a little harsh but not but not entirely unjust i think for the republic to have survived its leaders were going to have to have made some compromises and i think that unfortunately for the republic people like brutus and cassius didn't quite understand certainly brutus didn't quite understand the degree the number of compromises that they had to make uh in some sense in order to save the republic they had to kill it and I think they could have ended up with something more like the Republic than what uh, they got under Augustus. Yeah. But you couldn't simply do, you couldn't simply proclaim the Republic and say nothing's going to change. No, it, it um, and this gets us to sort of where I next like to go, what Caesar is up to. What's, it's, the tragedy of this is that Brutus doesn't understand this, and the person who does have a plan, it seems, is Caesar. Um, yeah. Although sometimes it's hard to figure out what that plan is. Sure. Um, what is he up well, to? Caesar doesn't understand some things <laughs> either. I mean, um, it's very if you live in a revolutionary age, in an age of enormous change, it's very difficult to see the way out. Yeah. Um, and that's the, tra you know, the tragedy for the Romans, that for, for a century between 133 B.C. and, you know, Augustus, they were trying to deal with the enormous dislocations of their society caused by the empire and its wealth and its the sufferings of the poor serving in the Roman army. It's a big, complicated subject. And it was 
forcing them to change, and they didn't really know how to change. Caesar saw much more clearly than most that it was going to be necessary to bring the provincial elites in, that the Romans could not go on continuing continuing to treat the provincials as if they were dirt, um, that they were going to have to um, share a degree of power with the provincials. Likewise, Caesar was a populist at home who, who wanted to share some power with the poor, although many of them, his, for many of them, his solution was to export them to colonies abroad. He saw this, and he was right about all of this. But as I said, he didn't have the patience or the, even the inclination to slowly um, make all the painstaking compromises with the past uh, and with the conservatives. Yes, he reached out to them to a degree, and he was very charming, but at a certain point he said, enough is enough, and the way this is going to happen is by giving supreme power to me. Yeah. What's the point of the Parthian expedition? That seems to me much more important than we realize. That yeah. he was on the verge of leaving Rome. This is he's tying up affairs. I guess at the time of his assassination, so that right. he's able to go east. He doesn't spend much time in Rome in the last fifteen years of his life, and he comes back to Rome in October of forty-five BC, and he's planning to leave on March eighteenth of forty-four, and he's going to go east and fight in a big three years long campaign, the highlight of which is going to be war against the Parthians. They're an Iranian empire, though in all probability, much of the fighting would have been in what is nowadays Iraq, that is Mesopotamia. Uh, they uh, won a notable victory against Caesar's ally Crassus in about 10 years earlier. And Caesar is going, in theory, to avenge Crassus, but he also wants to clean up a mess in Syria, which is actually in revolt against Caesar. Uh, and he wants to end his career as a man who conquers foreigners, not as a man who conquers Romans, as uh, he had just done in a civil war. Yeah, you, you but this would yeah. give him even more power, even more glory, and would allow him to come back to Rome uh, with even more political and military capital to, to cement his rule and, and to create a dynasty. Mm -hmm. and you, that's, a, that's a lovely point. You make that point several times throughout the book. The um, it, it gave people a bad taste in everyone's mouth that to celebrate his victories over Pompey and over the um, other Romans in the Civil War. So yes. to, to conclude a, a battle against foreigners is extraordinarily important from the, the Roman point of view. Yes. Uh, but, yes. Of, but of course, other events, um, <laughs> events happen, as they always yep. do. And yep. he is murdered. Could you describe yep. the murder briefly? Uh, sure. The murder according you know, to Strauss. <laughs> well, it, it certainly takes place in the Senate uh, around noon on the 8th of March. Uh, but unlike the version we get in Shakespeare, it's not some slapdash affair put on by amateurs. Rather, you know, among the leading um, conspirators are some of Rome's top generals, men like Cassius, Decimus, and Trebonius know perfectly well how to, am uh, how to carry out an ambush. Um, and they... Uh, plan the assassination like an ambush down to some very basic details. For instance, it's clear that the core conspirators are forming a perimeter around Caesar on the podium in the Senate House. The rest of the conspirators, I believe, are engaging in crowd control because we know that at least two men in the crowd try to save Caesar. One of the conspirators is deputized to keep Mark Antony out of the Senate House, because he would have been up on the podium with Caesar.
Caesar, and Antony was a strong guy, uh, and he could have actually provided some support for Caesar and rallied uh, uh, help against the uh, conspirators. But one of them, Trebonius, is deputized to buttonhole, as we would say, Antony, outside the doors of the Senate House. Um, also, um, in order to uh, protect themselves, they have... Um, uh, they brought it back up, which is a troop of gladiators uh, who belong to none other than Decimus, and they are there to protect them if the going gets rough, uh, because they have no way of knowing what support Caesar's men might be bringing to the Senate meeting, and also to protect them after the Senate meeting. Huh. And so they, we don't know the exact number of them, but how many, how many stab wounds did Caesar receive in the end? 23. So, and yet, uh, you say this is one of the first aut- recorded autopsies in history. Um, yes. And all, the autopsy reveals that only one of them was a fatal blow. Yes, if the autopsy is correct, it's only the blow to the ribs that kills him, and that seems to be the one that uh, uh, Gaius Casca, Casca, excuse me, Gaius Casca delivers. The murder is meticulously planned. Yes. Uh, nothing else afterwards seems to have been planned. Well, I think they planned to have the gladiators and to take over the Capitoline Hill. Mm-hmm. Um, that much is planned. And they, they planned to speak to the people and to present themselves and to rally support. And they hold themselves up on the Capitoline Hill after the murder's been committed, right? That's right, yes. But for how long were they up, up on the Capitoline Hill? They're up on the Capitoline Hill for the rest of the 15th and the 16th, and then they come down on the 17th. And the funeral is on, on what day? The 20th. Is, is, there any, is there a set time when the funeral has to be in, uh, in, Roman, in Roman practice, in Roman religious practice? It's not a set time, but for practical reasons, you can't leave a corpse too long. Right, <laughs> sure. And the funeral, as you describe it, it's my favorite part of the book. It's an extraordinary s- spectacle. I mean, and you, it's so vivid, and it's so foreign. It's so other. Uh, <laughs> one of the things that really uh, amazed me, I had no idea this was done, was that there were actors playing Caesar, yes. fi- at least five of them. Well, at least one of them, and perhaps five of them. Five of them, Not okay. Clear. At least one of them. And they yeah. wore wax-, wax masks. Yes. And this is typical. So when a, every Roman aristocratic family would have beeswax masks of its noble ancestors, they were taken during lifetime. An impression was taken during lifetime. They're not death masks. And in a, in a noble's funeral, you would hire an actor to dress like the dead, to wear the mask of the dead, and to imitate the dead's gait and even gestures in the funeral. And so what you then speculate, what's the effect upon the crowd? What, what are some of the other elements of the funeral procession? I should, should ask, ask that. Well, there would be, you know, there'd be mourners um, uh, who, you know, would march to the place where the funeral would be held. And then there would be a funeral speech. And the funeral speech is supposed to be given by a, the closest male relative. Uh, and then the body is... Um, cremated and, 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 you know, the remains are buried in a family tomb. And also you say that the head of the shrine would have been a trophy, a spear, um, which could well or did hold up the toga that Caesar had been wearing on the Ides of March. Well, what they did, which was, you know, these are a number of unusual things in this funeral. Um, they had a wax model of his body with the wounds. And um, they had 
had some kind of contraption set up so that the wax uh, body was uh, able to shown to the crowd ro- and rotated. Oh my goodness! Uh, and that really incited people. Um, the other thing that happened is it's not clear. So Antony, who is only a distant relative of Caesar, uh, gives the funeral oration. It's not clear whether how much of an oration he gives or not. Mm-hmm. We certainly there's certainly no reason to think he said friends, Romans, countrymen. Um, wonderful as that phrase is. But what he does do, which is very unusual, maybe unprecedented, is he has a sort of chorus and response of laments um, and gets the crowd, uh, it, it's, it's almost like cheering at a football game or something. Yeah. Uh, and that really incites the crowd. And and he's accompanied, uh, they, the crowd audience chants to the sound of a flute. That's, yes, yes, it's, it's, it's a musical. Yeah. There's a little Mel Brooks breaks into this, but I mean, it's uh, a little Mel Brooks. It's a little bit. It's extraordinary. And then, and then they burn Caesar's body. The crowd. I I imagine also. I'm getting the impression that certainly the legionaries attended. They're clashing their shields. Um, They're weeping, and then people start to grab material with which to burn the body. Right. So this is supposed to be a spontaneous riot, but I think it's spontaneous like spontaneous demonstrations at political conventions. Yeah, exactly. um, there's, there's some suggestion that Antony uh, had agent provocateur in the crowd, and frankly, I would be surprised if that wasn't the case. Um, so there is a quote-unquote spontaneous riot, um, and um, the crowd first wants to take the body to the Senate House where Caesar was assassinated and burn that down, but there's guards to prevent that. They want to go up to the Capitoline Hill uh, in the Temple of Jupiter, and who knows, maybe burn that down. But again, there are guards to prevent that. So they take him to the other end of the forum, mm-hmm. and they burn the body there. You... And that's later on where Augustus builds a temple to the deified uh-huh. Caesar. And you can see the spot today. It's still there in Rome. You, um, We have to wrap things up. Uh, you conclude that in the end... Um, Brutus and the conspirators made a terrible mistake. And yes. you say that the king wasn't Caesar. They were afraid the king was Caesar. The king wasn't Caesar, but Caesarism. Yes. The idea that a general and his armies could conquer the republic. Yes. The only way to kill that idea was to defend the republic by defeating its enemies once and for all. That's right. And that they did not do. Well, they figured that out, but it was too late. Um they needed an army of their own. So, in, as I said, they would have had need to make compromises to save the Republic. They needed to get soldiers, and to get soldiers, you needed to buy soldiers. And I think one of Brutus's fatal errors, and the conspirators' fatal errors, is that they did not indicate a, what political scientists call a credible commitment. They did not um, um, uh, raise the salary of Caesar's soldiers after the funeral, which is what they should have done. My guest today has been uh, Barry Strauss, an eminent classical historian, author of The Death of Caesar. Uh, I can't recommend it highly enough. It makes uh, buy it now and then read it on the beach. Uh, it's, it's the best. It's uh, the best thriller. It's like the sort of the Day of the Jackal. You know what's going to happen. De Gaulle uh, will die. Uh, will survive at the end. In the Death of Caesar, we know that Caesar gets killed, but it's how it happens and how it doesn't happen. That's the fascination of this book. And for those wanting to understand uh, what we mean by sourcing, um, it's beautifully done here. And if you wish to have your engravings, your mistaken engravings of the past de- destroyed, read also read this book. Barry, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you.
My pleasure, Al. Thank you for having me. For more historical thinking, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can comment on today's program and find show notes, links, and readings related to today's conversation. Historically Thinking is recorded in the studio of WAUG, the student radio station of Augustana College. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. Beth Leinbach keeps the schedules in sync. Matt Lehas keeps WAUG studio running. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. <laughs>